Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Let's pray one more time and then we'll dive into God's word together. Um, Lord, we thank you that you have spoken. Um, There are countless objects in our world um, that call us to give up everything to gain them, and yet those things do not speak to us in the personal way you have spoken to us in your word. And so I pray you give us a desire to hear you clearly, um, to submit to what it is you've given to us today, and to see above all things the wonderful way in which all of our lives and all of your word only makes sense in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we give you this time we pray in your name. Amen. What are the keys to a progressive society? Because the truth is, far, than just being, far more than just being like a political identifier of belonging to a progressive party, everybody wants progress. Everybody wants to get to where it is we want to be. We want to develop something to the point where we feel like it's actually accomplishing something. The world we want to live in. We want our culture, our homes, our habits, our cities, and our hobbies to all get to the place where we can thrive, to grow, and to develop. And what's interesting is that we need to ask ourselves, what does this progress look like, and how do we get there? Because the answer to the question of what is a progressive society, what is a progressive individual, what does it look like to get from here to there, the answer you give to that has wide ramifications. It was a desire for progress that led to the scientific revolution in the 16th century that led to breakthroughs in science and medicine and and technology. But it was also a desire for progress that led to genocides and ethnic cleansing in the 20th century. And even more, it was the desire for progress that poisoned the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve and Satan whispered the lie that you could become like God. God. And it's for the myth of progress that Adam and Eve forever complicated our way of moving forward clearly. In fact, human history shows that we all have a desire to make something happen. We all have a desire to get better at some level, but we haven't yet figured out a way to move forward without making a complete mess of things along the way. But what we're going to see in the book of Deuteronomy today is that God knows how culture and individuals can move forward in a way that really works. Today in Deuteronomy, Moses is continuing his sermon, and he's applying this idea to them. Here they stand as God's people Israel on the banks of the Jordan River looking over into the promised land, and in the promised land lies endless possibilities for progress. In the promised land is the allure of a new life, a new beginning, a new society. And if Israel is to occupy the land and develop it in the way they want to, Moses is telling them that they need to move forward in the way God would have them move forward. And the same is true for us as Christians, as people who believe in Jesus Christ. If we want to move forward, if we want to become the people that God wants us to be, the church that God wants us to be, then we too need to realize that God knows how we move forward. If we want to be satisfied in joy, if we want to love God, if we want to love others, we need to look at what God says it takes to move forward and lay down what we think it takes to move forward. 
And this is, in fact, what C.S. Lewis talked about in his book, Mere Christianity, which came out in the 50s. He says this, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back the soonest is the most progressive man. And I love what Lewis is communicating here because for the Christian and for the realist, we realize that progress has some spatial elements to it. Meaning, if we really want to move forward, we need to know how to look back. We need to know how to look forward into the future consequences of decisions. And after looking back and after looking forward, then we weigh the moment. What do we do in this moment to avoid failures of the past and to build towards the future? And it's this idea of progress that Moses is bringing God's people to understand in Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 29, which are the three chapters we're going to be looking at today in the book of Deuteronomy. And the overall tone is that if we want to move forward, if the people of Israel wanted to move forward, they need to submit themselves first and foremost to God's word. And to help impress this, Moses kind of picks up three of those spatial things and calls God's people to consider them. And so in the first part of chapter 27, what Rick just read for us, Moses is going to call the people to consider what God has done, to consider what God has done in the past. And then in chapters 20, the last part of 27 and the first part of 28, he's going to call, or in all of 28, excuse me, he's going to call Israel to consider what God is going to do. And then in chapter 29, he's going to call them to consider how they will respond. So he's calling them to look back at what God has done, to consider what God is going to do, and then in light of what they know, make decisions as to what it looks like to move forward, to be the people that God has called them to be. And so if you have a Bible, um, you can open up to Genesis 27. If you don't have one, there are some tables in the back. We'd love it if you take a Bible home with you. But I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 for us today of chapter 27. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over and enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan... You shall set up these stones, concerning which I command you today, on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings on it, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So I'm a huge fan of college football, mostly because I love seeing how different uh, colleges have different game day traditions. And one of my favorite traditions to see is the tradition that the Clemson football team has on game day. And they have their locker room that's kind of up on a hill. And before the games, they run down the, the hill onto the playing field. But on top of the hill, where it can be seen while they're on the field and they're on the sidelines, is this pedestal that has a rock on it. And the rock is called Howard's Rock. And before the team runs down the field, 
all the players touch the rock and they run down as a constant reminder of the tradition and the legacy of Clemson football. Howard's Rock was named after one of the early and great coaches in Clemson's history. And so it stands as a testament to how they got to where they are and what it looks like to continue the legacy of this team. And what Moses is prescribing for God's people in chapter 27 is really similar. Moses is telling God's people who are on one side of the Jordan River, when you finally get into the promised land, I want you to go up on Mount Ebal and I want you to set up this altar. And this altar is a supernatural reminder that God wants Israel to always be reminded of, to always be mindful of, that you might always look and you might see Mount Ebal and see the altar and be reminded of what it means. And this is the first point today is that God's people must consider what God has done. In building an altar, he's calling them to look back to always consider what God has done in the past. And if you've been with us as we've been preaching through Deuteronomy, we've talked about kind of this trifecta that the promised land brings. And the promised land is so important because we actually saw the pattern for God's plan in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, we saw the three things that God wanted to do with his creation. He wanted there to be God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, with his presence. God was really there. And so this promised land is something that is now recreating what was lost in Eden. Adam and Eve had God's people and God's place and God's direct presence in the promised land, but due to their sin, they lost it. And now, this, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we actually have this new reality. We are God's people through the Holy Spirit. He has given us his presence through the Holy Spirit, but we are not yet in God's place. One day God will bring us home into the new heavens and the new earth, and we will live forever. And so this promised land is this physical reality of this ultimately spiritual truth. It is part history and part object lesson of what God is doing with us today in the church. And Moses' point to the people of Israel is when you get in that promised land, you got the trifecta. You are God's people redeemed out of slavery by the blood of the Passover lamb. You are in God's place. You are in the land, not Egypt's land, not the Ammonites' land, but your land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And you are in God's presence. How many times in the book of Deuteronomy have we seen Moses say, in the place where God shall set his name? God is going to be here. He's going to be in the land. The the effects of the fall are beginning to undo themselves. But he's saying, when you get there, don't forget how you got there. Don't forget it. Set up this altar as a reminder. And as the people begin to establish their lives in the land, this altar was a reminder of God's grace in bringing them as God's people to God's place in God's presence. And there's kind of some imagery in this altar. He says, gather these uncut stones and heap them together. And don't forget, Israel, that I gathered you. You were not a people when I found you, but I gathered you and I made you a people. And part of the reason why it's uncut stones is God has prohibited them from using tools because they might make idols But also there's this idea of where God isn't choosing the squarest stones or the sharpest tools for his people. Praise God for that. God's using uncut stones because he's a God of grace and he is taking people who are scattered all over, who are nothing, who are all bumpy, lumpy, and weird. And by his grace, he's bringing them together to create a people, his people. 
And we know that because just as the altar is a place where they would offer sacrifices to God, that as God brought his people together, there was this covenanting of God and man. It was in God's people where God was choosing to relate to humanity. God was the initiator. God was again restoring the presence which was lost due to sin. And then lastly, when the altar has been built, he says, cover it in plaster. There's this aspect of permanence that comes with it. And then he says, then write on it, very legibly, very plainly, not with sloppy handwriting, all of the words of this law. Why? Because Moses is teaching God's people that it's their ability to keep God's law which will preserve them in the land. To keep God's law means that they will endure in the land of blessing as long as they would obey. The altar stood as a reminder of two things they shouldn't forget. The first is that they got here by grace. God brought them into the land. And the second thing is, is that God's law was what was going to protect them so that they might enjoy grace. And for New Testament Christians, we see that this land and this life was meant to point us to Jesus. Which means our symbol, your symbol of considering what God has done is not some heap of rocks on top of a mountain. The symbol of what God has done for you is the cross on Calvary's hill. For Christians to move forward, it means that we need to look back on the cross and understand what God has done to get us here. At GCF this past week, we had a new student show up um, and I talked to him after the sermon and I said, hey, what stood out to you from the sermon? It turns out that he is Catholic. And he had just gone to the baptism, a Christian baptism of one of his friends at another campus ministry the night before. And reflecting on that, and then at GCF, we actually heard the testimony of a GCF student, and then the gospel was preached and sung about. He said this, and it was really striking to me. I said, what stood out? And he said, you guys talk a lot about being saved by Jesus. Like, that's this chief identity you guys have is that Jesus died for your sins. He says in the Catholic Church, like it's assumed, but it's not really discussed. And that's because to be a Christian, to forget the truth that God saved us by grace through Jesus Christ on the cross, is to actually lose any hope for progress. It's to be a sailor without a north star. We have no sense of direction. We have no sense of purpose. But in looking at the cross, we get clarity on what God has done for us and what that means for our response. To forget God's grace in saving us is to forget everything about how to live. The cross, uh, so I got, it's, kind, it's, like a, it's like a junior high watch, like kind of smart, kind of not. It's growing in its capacity. And uh, I turned off this thing because it does this thing when I got it, where it like buzzes on my wrist and it says breathe. And I was like, am I, am I not breathing <laughs> right now? Because it's something we do involuntarily, but there are some times where it's actually to your benefit to stop and to, to actually breathe deeply. To be reminded that you're hunched over and stressed out and you shouldn't have this much coffee in a day. You see, the cross is a reminder of the involuntary reflex of grace that keeps us alive as Christians. And it is there every moment. God's grace to you is not dependent upon you constantly speaking theological truths to yourself. You're okay, God's grace is big enough to watch a football game. But there are times where for our own health we need to stop and we need to breathe. 
And we need to intentionally focus on what God has done in our life so that we can actually understand what's going on. And this is why we as Christians come to church. This is why we pray. This is why we read God's word. This is why we meet together. This is why we pray for each other. It's not attempts to earn God's grace. It's attempts to remind us of God's grace. And so for you, just like how your watch might alert you to times where you're not breathing as you should, even though you are breathing, you need to stop. You need to look back. Do you have things in your life that cause you to stop and reflect on what Jesus has done for you? Whether it's coming here to church, whether it's meeting a brother or sister for coffee and prayer or Bible reading, we are ones who should not forget what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, the truth is, Missoula has a number of statues around town, and those statues are supposed to remind me of something. I don't really know what any of our statues in Missoula mean, and yet, my life goes on as normal. There's no adverse effects of not knowing what the statues symbolize. But when Moses is creating this altar statue, it's not just to remind Israel of their history. It's actually to remind them of something tangible, something that does affect them. It's to remind them not only of what God has done, but also of what God is going to do, the realities which will actually change them inside the land. And Moses' point is that if you forget God's grace, if you forget what got you here, you're going to start living dangerously. And this is where Moses begins kind of the longest uninterrupted topic in his entire sermon. And it's here where Moses wants to help Israel with the second point today. That's to consider what God is going to do. First he calls them to look back. Look at what God has done. But now he calls them to look forward. And look at this next ceremony Moses prescribes for the people when they get into the land um, in verses 9 through, we're actually going to read through 26. So a longer passage it says this, Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That day, Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Iskar, Joseph, and Benjamin. So that's half of the twelve tribes of Israel. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. That's the other half of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Levites shall declare to the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed shall be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmarks, that's like property boundaries, and all God's people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, say it with me, Amen. 
Okay, we see what he's doing here. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has covered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with this kind of animal. And the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed shall be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. So what's happening here is far more than just being rituals, God's people are actually reaffirming and re-entering into a covenant. And there's doing this by some physical realities. He splits half of Israel to go on Mount Gerizim. He splits half to go on Mount Ebal. And these are two mountains connected by a small valley right over the Jordan River. So they could kind of be seen, right? We're talking about Israel. We're not talking about the Rocky Mountains here. And so the the mountains they're on, they could hear each other. And the people on Gerizim are to recite the blessings of law-keeping to those on Ebal. And the people on Ebal, where the altar was built, are to recite the curses of law-breaking on Gerizim. And then afterwards, the Levites, the priests, lead in this corporate call and response that we just read, where 12 times they say, cursed be. And we see what we looked at last week, those four areas of life that redemption changes. It changes their civil life, their religious life, their sexual life, and their family life. All aspects of God's redeemed people are completely different. And each of those times, each of those 12 times, God's people say, amen, in agreement. 12 times for the 12 tribes, these people are saying, we affirm this law. We affirm this covenant. In fact, from Deuteronomy 26 to Deuteronomy 28, what is happening is Moses and Israel are affirming this covenant with God. They are affirming covenant loyalty. And when it came to moving forward, Moses wanted them to consider the realities of what's at stake. What is at stake when it comes to obeying and being loyal to God in the land? Two things, blessings and curses. Those are the two choices these people have in going into the land. And this idea of blessing and curses, if you look at your Bible, makes up all of chapter 28. A massive chapter, 68 verses. And it's split up in two unequal halves. The first half, if you have your Bible, begins in verse 1 and goes through verse 14. And this is how it opens. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations. And then the second half of the chapter begins in verse 15 and goes through verse 68, and in this half, it begins like this. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And this passage is one of the largest uninterrupted passages of Moses who is preaching not only as a prophet but as a pastor to the people of Israel. And because of the, the length of it, we're not going to read all of it today, but there are a couple takeaways of what Moses is trying to impress on Israel that we can see really clearly in this text. And the first is this, 
is that Moses wants Israel to know that God is faithful to bless, but God is also faithful to curse. Yes, it is God who blesses, wonderful blessings, but it's God who also curses, terrible curses. Now let's remember who God is talking to here. He's talking to Israel. He's talking to his people, his people whom he has already brought out of slavery, whom he has already promised to bring in to the promised land. God isn't saying that if you obey my law, then I'll save you. He's saying, I saved you, now obey my law. You see, even in the Old Testament, the gospel of grace always preceded the giving of the law. God is always a God of grace, even if stipulations follow it up. But this same God who blesses is faithful to punish those who reject his grace. In fact, this is what is at the heart of sin. Why is God so eager and just to judge those who disobey? Because sin is not just impersonal violations of arbitrary rules. Moses defines for us what sin is, what lawbreaking is, in verse 20. Look at what he says. The Lord will send curses on you, curses and confusion and frustration in all that you underdo until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. All sin is fundamentally forsaking God. It's not just breaking rules. It is a personal attack on the God who created us and the God who has called us to himself. And the truth is, is that Moses spends 14 wonderful verses on blessing. You go read verses 1 through 14, and you will be so excited to obey God. You'll be so excited for the opportunities that await you in the promised land. And then after those 14 verses come 54 verses of less great things. Longer things. More terrible things. More emotional things. And all the things you see in the second half of chapter 28 are weighty. Like we feel them. In one part, Moses begins to talk about how because of their sin, nations are going to come and they're going to attack Israel because they've rejected their God. And look at how it describes this siege beginning in verse 52. They shall besiege you in all of your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout the land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress in which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of his children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating because there is nothing else left in the siege and in the distress which your enemy shall distress you in all of your towns. So just to be clear here, God is not prescribing 
the eating of children. We see in Deuteronomy that he hates that. That's part of the reason why he's judging the other nations. These other nations are sacrificing. But he's saying these sieges are going to be so terrible, you will have nothing else to eat, and your hearts will be so corrupt that you'll do these terrible things. Verse 56. The most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and her daughter. Her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all of your towns. It's yucky stuff. It's stuff that causes us to grieve, to feel weird that a God who is holy, loving, and just would prescribe that sin is this bad, that it's punished this severely. I remember when I was in driver's ed um, and uh, a sheriff or a uh, a police, I don't remember if it was sheriff or police officer, but they came to the driver's ed class and they made us put on these vision impairment goggles, which were meant to simulate what it was like to drive drunk. And I remember putting the goggles on and it immediately begins to blur your sense of vision. It's like massive Coke lenses with ripples in it. And so you can't really see what's going on. And I remember it took all of 10 seconds for me to get extremely nauseous, trying to look around and trying to just walk this course that they had for you to walk. And it was so bad that even when I took off the glasses, it took me a while to, to, to not feel sick and to regain my normal vision. But just as that officer put glasses on students to, to make them feel the weight of impaired driving. Moses is truthfully representing how grotesque and terrible the wages of sin are so that you would feel the weight of it. That you would not desire it. That there would be no question to you that this will not serve you well. When you see God's immense blessing for faithfulness and God's just punishment for unfaithfulness, you see that these things really matter to God. When you, what matters to you? When you think of things in your life that really matter, that for you have the greatest dichotomy of either good or bad or important or insignificant, what are those things? Because here, God is showing us the mattering things to him. Sin and obedience matters because life and death matter. Now for Israel in this time, and for God's physical nation, there was a sense of immediate physical punishment if they were to transgress God's law. And we see that as Israel is going to be exiled because of their sin. But in the New Testament, we see that God is recreating his people as a spiritual people. Which means that when we as spiritual people look at this text and we are so burdened by the weight of the physical judgment here, it is nothing compared to the spiritual judgment that awaits everyone on account of their sins. But look at how the Bible speaks to you. You in here who consider yourselves believers. Look at how important Faithfulness, obedience, endurance is to us. Hebrews 10, 36 through 39. 
for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we, that's those who believe, are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve your souls. This passage isn't saying that you can lose your salvation through disobedience. But what it is saying is those who are truly saved by Jesus will endure. Obedience will show its fruit in the long run. And if you aren't a believer in here today, God is faithful to judge you for your wrong, just as he's faithful to judge me for my wrongs. But the difference is that just like me and just like hopefully those who are sitting around you, you can come to Jesus and you can see God's faithfulness to bless you by his grace. If you've never considered that there's more than just Sunday mornings and relief of your conscience up for grabs in the course of this world, that's really life and death, I hope that as we consider this text today that you consider coming to Jesus. Do you consider the grace and relief that he brings to you? Because what this text actually shows is there's like a fundamental problem in all of our hearts that shows we need God's grace to change. Imagine if you were at a restaurant. In fact, maybe some of you can think in terms of your Super Bowl party this afternoon. And your host comes out and they say, I have this wonderful dish for you. It is cooked at the perfect temperature. It will melt on your taste buds so wonderfully that you will say, you have never tasted anything this good. And it will fill you perfectly to the level of where you feel full but not sleepy. You know that line? It'll just be great and it'll sustain you for the rest of the day. And actually it covers your mouth with such wonderful things that you can't stop tasting it even after you eat it. It's going to be amazing. I'd like you to eat it. Or... We have this thing that our neighbor brought over that's been sitting in our stove for the last week. And you could eat that and you could go to the hospital and die from food poisoning. Which one would you want? None of us would choose dish two because we're not dumb, right? And none of us would begrudge our hosts for telling us of that danger. But when we read passages like this, don't we find some sort of offense that God would do this? But what we miss is that sin and punishment is not God's problem. It's our problem. We are the ones who reject. We are the ones who somehow desire things that are less than good. But it's here in the promise of blessing and curse that we see another wonderful truth, and that's this. That this God, as weighty as this passage is, is gracious and not vindictive. God is gracious and he's not vindictive. I don't like board games. It's a pretty well-known point of contention in my house. But there's one card game I'll play, and it's called the game of Mao. And if you've ever played Mao you know the joy of Mao. Because in Mao, one person is the Mao master. And the Mao master knows and creates the rules 
and no one else does. The point of the game is that everyone else has to figure out the rules, and the Mao master gets to judge people based off them not following the rules. And I love being the Mao master because I get to let my vindictive spirit run free, and I get to watch people walk headlong into traps, breaking rules, and enduring punishment that they had no idea they had ever even violated a rule. Brothers and sisters, God is not a vindictive Mao master. Why is God spending this much time and throwing this much weight into the pages of this book? Because he's gracious to warn us. He wants us to see how dangerous this is. He wants us to be affected by it. He wants us to go to him. He wants us to choose plate A. But he also wants us to know that to not choose obedience is to choose disobedience. And he's calling us to choose him, to love him, to be faithful to him. Paul in Romans 2, he says that Jew or Gentile, Christian or non-Christian, you have at some point tripped the tripwire of punishment. God has created this world in such a way where his law is imprinted in the heavens. That we have our conscience that is given to us by God to tell us what is wrong and what is right. So to do wrong at any point, to not worship God, though his presence is seen in this world, is to put yourself not under the blessings for obedience, but to put yourself under the curses of disobedience. And God warns us of this precisely so that we might respond and repent. That we might turn to Jesus and that we might live. Jesus has made a way back. And that's what we would repent that we would change. You can, in this moment, step out of Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. And by the grace of Jesus, you could find yourself in verses 1 through 14 because of what Jesus has done. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come. And so Paul is actually talking to the church in Galatia about the law. But now something different has come. The fullness of of time had come, and God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God is faithful to bless, and God alone can bless. God is faithful to curse, And regardless of what you think the worst curse in this world is, God is the only one faithful to curse eternally those who have sinned against him. But in Jesus, God's faithfulness to bless and God's faithfulness to curse are reconciled. Where because Jesus took the curse for us, we are blessed by God. If you want to find peace with God, peace which you were created to live in, peace which begins to restore God's people and God's place in God's rule, it starts by submitting the whole of our reality to the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his immense love for you where Jesus took 54 verses of curses because he loves you. That's the first step forward is begin to see that the only way we can move forward is by taking steps in Jesus. But what Moses is about to show is this isn't just the first step. It's also the second step, and the third step, and the fourth step, and the fifth step, 
And we go on and on and on and on. Because the way to move forward is always in light of what God has already done. After stressing this dichotomy of blessing and curses, Moses moves into what I think is his most pastoral moment in this text. In light of looking back and in light of looking forward, he says, now in light of this, Israel, consider how you will respond. This is our third point for you, for those who have seen that the cross signifies both blessing and curse. How will you respond? What will your life look like? You see, many times we fall into this false idea that to have responded to the gospel once is to have responded to the gospel sufficiently. You said a prayer once, you know Jesus died for your sins, the rest of your life is cruise control. You got through the gate, you just live life how you want to live. But look at what Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, 1 through 15. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant he made with them at Horeb. So that was when they first came out of Egypt. And Moses summoned all Egypt and said to them, You have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. The great trials your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And we're going to talk more about that next week. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and we gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God. The heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, the little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant." Of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that He may establish you today as His people, and that He may be your God as He promised you, as He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today before our God. So what's Moses' point here? Is after telling them what God has done, after looking at the future blessings and future curses which come, he says, look at where you are. We're here. The promised land is there. Remember Egypt, what God did to get you out? Remember in the wilderness where he fed you with manna from heaven and quail? Remember when we came to this land, how there were those big nations with those big walls and tall people and you were scared of them. Remember how I gave them over to you. If God was faithful to do all of that to get you here, do you think that God's going to stop being faithful in the future? Don't you see that God wants to continue his blessing to you? That you should keep this covenant. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for your offspring. You're not going to outrun God's grace. It is always going to overtake you. 
Look at the wonder of life up ahead of you. He's saying to his people, do you see the blessing that God has saved you? And do you see that how you think of your salvation shapes how you live? Consider this today as you consider what it looks like to go into the land. Why do we as Christians always talk about the Jesus who saved us? Because if we can look at the cross and see that Jesus solved our greatest problem, that we were separated from God and under the curse of sin, then don't you think he's able to help you in the smaller problems of life? Don't you think that he cares you enough to help in those moments? Now, I've used the word blessing a lot in this text because Moses uses the word blessing a lot in this text, but in our materialistic society, what is the blessing of God? Is it just progress? Is it wealth? Is it houses? Is it homes? What homes and houses are the same thing, but it alliterated, so it was good. Um, Is it any of these things that we just put onto our cultural mantle and say, this is the blessing of God? Do we get to decide what God's blessing is? Or has God already told us what his blessing is? Well, in the middle of the blessing portion, Moses defines the blessing of God. The blessing that all of us, in searching for progress, are deeply looking for is this. Verses 8 through 10. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord and walk in his ways... All the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. What is the blessing? What is it that all of us desperately want to get to where we think we need to be? We need to be God's people. We need to be a people called by the Lord, made holy by his grace. The blessing of God is God himself. Being called the child of God, being adopted as sons through Jesus Christ is the greatest blessing you will ever know in this world. And this is so important for us to remember. This is something Paul picks up on in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28, a verse many of us have heard. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good. So here, blessing works together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But what is the good? When we have bad in our life, when we desire a blessing, what is it that we expect God to do in that moment for our good? Well, he answers this in the next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. The blessing of God, the good for those who hope in Jesus, is that in everything life throws at you in this land, you are being shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. You are shaped more and more into the one who came and fulfilled the law by his perfection and gave it to you by his grace that you are learning to worship God better, that you are learning to love others better, that we in all things are living out the reality of our salvation by becoming more and more Christ-like. That's the purpose for which you were made. You were made to be shaped into the image of Jesus. And you have to see this. 
Because if you do not see your salvation as the greatest blessing that God can give to you, you are moving into the rest of life completely unarmed against sin. Because look at what Moses says. Look at what he says next, verses 16 through 20. You know how he lived in the land of Egypt and how he came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against the man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. What is the greatest danger of progress? What's the greatest danger you have in your life from moving forward? Moses says it is a poisonous and bitter root. And what does that root look like? It's one who stands on land given to them by God's amazing grace, who hears this law and chooses to bless himself, saying, I will be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. You see how easily sin perverts two things. The first thing is, is it makes you think that you're capable of blessing yourself. Where we've already seen it is only God who is able to bless. But they say, I'll bless myself. And what does that look like secondarily? It means that they're going to use sin as a tool to get their blessing. They're going to use sin as a means to move forward and get to the society or the place that they feel like they want to be. But what a clear picture of what sin is, of the lie that's in each of our hearts. We think sin actually helps us, and that's why we do it. Don't we say so many times, I'll be okay? Do I know this might be wrong? Yeah, but I think I'll be okay. How many times have we prayed this prayer as men and women in the throes of sexual immorality or pornography and we say, I'll be safe? How many times do we consider alcohol and we know the next drink is the first of many more drinks and we say, I'll be okay. How many times do we pursue hobbies and adventures and mountaintops and relationships and we give up gathering together, praying, worshiping God, and we say, 
I'll be okay. I've made it to the land. But sin is always dangerous. We, here, here's the reality. We choose sin not because we're weak. We choose sin because we want to. We choose sin because in a momentary lapse, we actually think it can provide what only God himself can. But look at the undoing effect that sin has. Listen to this. Listen, when, we, when you think of sin, listen to how Moses describes this and look at how it completely undoes the blessing. Look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 28. Listen to the blessing. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be in the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle. In the increase of your herds and of your young flock, blessed shall you be in the basket and in the kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. But now look at verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall, you be, shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the increase of your herds and of your young flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. Sin undoes the blessing that you want. But it lies to you and says it's always able. Sin doesn't get us closer to where we want to be. It forever distances us from it because where we want to be is with the God who has sent his son to save us. And sin distances us. And Moses says at the end of 28, in this poetic moment, he says at the end of all things, you'll be sold as slaves back to Egypt. We think sin advances us, but sin only is a slave trader back to where we started. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Texas, shared an illustration once that's always stood with me. And he talked about um, seeing this YouTube video of this man who had made friends with a lion in Africa. And it shows them interacting like, like it's a, like a cat, like a little cat. I understand it's a cat, okay? Um, like a house cat in Africa. And they're playing and they're rolling around. And then one day, the lion kills the man. And the whole world is like surprised. And he's like, why are you surprised? The lion was made to kill the man. It's an apex predator. This was not unnatural. This was natural. And this is the mistake we make when we think that sin blesses us. When sin at its core level in its DNA only destroys us. There have been so many times this week in my heart where God in his grace has revealed, this is you. You are the one saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And we might say, well, there's grace. Brothers and sisters, there is so much grace. To read this text and think that your obedience is good enough to get you blessing or your disobedience is terrible enough to discredit your blessing is not the point of this text. 
Jesus saves us and Jesus alone. But even if we as Christians know there is grace for our sins, why would we so choose things which remove even the nearness of God's blessing to us? Why would we do that? Why do we want the dangerous food when God has offered us to us a plate of wonderful food in the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is why we cannot forget the altar on Ebal. This is why we cannot forget the cross of Christ. Do you really believe that your salvation in Jesus Christ gives you everything you need to obey moving forward? Because you can say, God is good to bless. He is good to bring me to where he wants me to be. And do we see the goodness of that enough to return when we've gone astray? Paul says in Romans that his forbearance is meant to lead us to repentance. And here's the thing. I don't think we will ever, this side of death, understand how offensive sin is to God. I also don't think this side of death will ever understand how much God loves us in Jesus Christ. But if we did, we would do it. We would live rightly. But God has given us in this time not to live by sight, but to live by faith. Look at how Moses concludes this in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. God's word in the gospel tells us the things that matter to God. Do they matter to you? God hasn't given us to know all the things. But he has given us to know important things so that we might obey and follow Jesus. So what is Moses' effect for the people of Israel and what should it be for us? It's for you to consider all the things that are driving you forward. All the pictures of a successful and progressive life or hobby or home that you might have. And to actually lay all of those things down and to say, I want to move forward as God would have it. I want to live in light of his blessing in Jesus Christ and know the fruit of obedience and the wonder of grace. C.S. Lewis finishes his quote we opened with in saying this. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of our world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We're on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. Let's go back to the well of grace every day. Remind ourselves of what God has done, of the joy he's promised for us, and let us move forward in light of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you help us today to consider progress as you had laid it out. Lord, you have in your wisdom withheld from us a clear picture of sin. 
We wrestle to see how offensive it is, how dangerous it is. We wrestle to see how beautiful and how wonderful you are, but you have told us in your grace of the danger of sin and the beauty of grace. May that actually shape our lives this week as we wrestle with sin and obedience. May we see that on the cross you have promised to bless, you have faithfully blessed us already, and we would expect that you would continue to bless us as we move on, even when it seems hard and dangerous. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.